Somehow, this Transformers movie didn't have the number four in it. In honor of iOrigins, what's the dumbest title for the best movie? I don't know if Transformers 4 would uh, win that award either. Uh, my, I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Legend of the Guardians, The Owls of Gahool, Zack Snyder's only animated film, technically, which I really enjoyed. I'm David the Seven, and Jaws, because the fuck? Uh-huh. And I'm David Ehrlich. I'm going to go with The Thing, which, like, I get it. Like, I understand why that is the title. But when you when you take it apart, when you have a little distance and just think about The Thing, it's uh, it's pretty silly. It should have been called all Shit of that. The Thing. Like, I covered all of that with just The Fuck. The Fuck. Jaws. He had Jaws, Dave. Jaws. Big Jaws. We all have Jaws. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 31 for Tuesday, July 15th. 2014 i hear we have itunes reviews which you should leave us by searching for us on itunes and leaving us a five-star review if it's not five stars it's not really important i mean i <laughs> wow. think it's important we, people can we, leave whatever we, reviews you know, they in, want in the spirit of the show you can leave whatever kind of review you want but uh we, we definitely five, we encourage five star you are certainly helpful for us finding new listeners and new episodes I feel like... that you could hate if you don't like the show so even if you loathe us and especially me Leave five stars. Yeah, five stars gets you more of whatever. And then we read your reviews, like so. David Ehrlich. Three new reviews this week. One from Cold Killer, who says, Fantastic, but I love your podcast, but I wish you kept your episodes up for download longer. Dave, that feels like a complaint addressed to you. I don't... That's that's your business. They come down? (laughs) Who knew? I I didn't realize that. That's a recent thing. That'll go away. Right. I, we, so look, I will fix that for you. This has been a productive segment already. Anyone suffering from this problem, that, that problem will go away. Dave promises. Uh, also, John RV says, Great podcast. I'm so glad I stumbled upon this podcast via Storm of Spoilers, which is our Game of Thrones podcast, which I would, will assume will return next season. The reviews are wide-ranging and always interesting, even if they diverge from my usual tastes. David, Dave, Katie, and Matt are knowledgeable, engaging, and always bring an interesting perspective to the reviews that I hadn't considered. It's even fun to listen to David barely restrain his pedantry each week. Even even that is fun. And, <laughs> and finally, WB Goose 13 says, it's fine, I guess. So this week in honor, in honor, not just pegged to, but in honor of the purge, colon, anarchy, colon, that's it. Obama's America. (laughs) Obama's America. We are going to be talking about class warfare on film. I think class warfare is probably one of those broad topics that you could, uh, there's no nook or cranny of film history, no national cinema that has not delved into this in some way, shape, or form, and we are utterly unprepared to uh, dive into all of them in this segment, particularly if we're only giving ourselves 10 minutes. But we can at least 
try to look back on the recent past and see maybe how class warfare has trickled its way into uh, American movies, especially in the immediate wake of uh, Obama recently saying that he wanted to make class warfare a huge item on his agenda and then discovering that he didn't was, want to make class warfare no he a, did a point. he did well he wanted he wanted to make the inequality well, no, of point, course of course no he class warfare to, is how it all goes to hell to not to underscore. get too political <laughs> he didn't want to underscore class well he didn't want to like you know promote class warfare you're right he wanted to he handed everyone machine guns and said <laughs> the purge it's on he had, he had a great idea called the purge uh, no <laughs> he, done it he again, wanted Obama. to address class warfare in a second term and, and class inequality uh, and found that uh, the rhetoric of class warfare was so toxic, particularly amongst the right wing, that it was extremely difficult to broach in a meaningful, productive way. And he hired a number of historians to help uh, find a workaround uh, that and uh, so far to, to no effect. And so there's been some backpedaling that now class inequality is not going to be uh, one of his sort of marquee items, which is a shame. Meanwhile, our blockbuster cinema is picking up that gauntlet right. uh, luckily we have the purge to counter <laughs> luckily political we have inactivity we have in time <laughs> we have elysium we have some other movies i would imagine uh and uh, so how how patches and dave do you think is hollywood or or this smattering of offerings especially since i don't know let's say the 2008 election uh adding meaningfully to the discourse at all or are they simply stirring the wrong elements in a potentially dangerous way um i'm going to say that it's adding meaning to the discourse but maybe not all of them maybe just the fact that there are so many of them i think it's also i think a lot of what we're seeing recently both last year and this year and maybe in the future if some of these continue to do at least minorly okay money is um, either reactions to uh, Occupy Wall Street in America or just this sort of revolutionary attitude that took over with the Arab Spring uh, a few years ago and sort of how uh, Hollywood is processing that into blockbusters, which always makes it weird because it's like, especially last week we talked about Donna, the Planet of the Apes, which is like, big ideas but sort of discussed very with very obvious metaphors and so it's weird to also just have something like the purge where it's like well also this your release could look like this and i haven't seen the purge or the purge anarchy but i understand the first one was a home invasion film and the second one is not and has some sort of has uh, matt you've seen the purge anarchy david and i have both seen i believe it takes it to the streets uh (laughs) it should be the purge to the streets but it fulfills the supposed promise of, of the first movie which you know was set up as being this sort of cross uh this sort of uh society i can't even speak <laughs> class stratified sort of cross-section of uh america's class divided but ended up being a home invasion movie and this one is as patch has said on the streets it, it starts with these sort of middle class impossibly boring white protagonists uh matt saracen aka zach guilford who people might recognize from Matt uh, Saracen from Final Final Nightlights Friday Nightlights and uh, Final Nightlights. <laughs> I've been watching too much Final Destination, or maybe not Fine. enough. It's hard to say. And strands him and his uh, quasi girlfriend out on the streets in Purge Night, where they sort of get caught up um, in a lower income area and with a racially diverse group of ragtag heroes who are uh, maybe unsurprisingly in movies like this also still led by a 
uh, anti-hero white man. Um, but, and, and there are some other elements sprinkled in that really hammer home some of the themes that are on the periphery of the first movie. But it is, um, you know, and it, it's, it's fundamentally satire. And I think what's interesting about it is that it's a horror film. I mean, the first one was sold as a horror film. This one, to a certain extent, perhaps, but it, it's not a Saw movie. I mean, this is a, a fantasy, an alleged fantasy that reveals itself to be a horror film for the wealthy and the reverse for those who are uh, not quite as well off. It's, it's a film that starts mm. as a horror film and sort of reveals itself to be a fantasy as it goes on and the tables are turned and, and the truth comes out that The Purge is really ultimately nothing to do with catharsis and really it's about population control, exterminating the poor and making the rich richer. And it's the a horror dead. film for both sides. I mean, let's be honest. The 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 no, 5% of the patches. poor... That sounds very ideal. In the, in I think there's a lot of people that I would just kill if I had a lawless <laughs> night. But but I, I wish this, it was about class. In this future, the poor are still being preyed upon. I mean, they're the ones running in fear from the rich. Ah, for a no, large that's majority. the premise. That's the premise. But I think as as it develops and the poor become armed and they rise up and begin retaliating against the rich, killing them, eliciting cheers from the audience. Uh, yeah, that was a little weird. Of I had that as well. The catharsis that the purges allegedly, you know. And, and uh, misleadingly put in to help you know people experience um, it, it becomes a fantasy for the group that the hunt did become the hunters you know it's the, the most av- obvious dynamic possible and then this fantasy for the rich these people who are paying lots of money to have the poor rounded up and brought to their homes so they can execute them and, and release the beast as is apparently the official government rhetoric of the purge uh, which is the detail about this movie i found most unbelievable of all things uh they <laughs> they you know it, it becomes a hard film for them as as they realize that they have uh, given the people they're trying to oppress both the uh added incentive and also the tools and the organizational structure to rise up against them even though the purge might begin by having this faction list fighting and all the people tearing each other apart and every man for itself kind of uh, dynamic uh, as the movie continues you see how effective uh, people can be and really how their only their only possible means of, of an effective solution is banding together well, but it's it's is it but the movie it, what's interesting to go back to our original discussion is the movie is going to open to a lot of money relative to its budget as the first movie was budgeted three million dollars and pulling in roughly a million a hundred million um this movie is going to turn a profit and does it does it sort of point to how these movies may not necessarily be you know, movies of this size may not necessarily be the most effective means of class commentary because the same people well, who are making sort of agitated commentary about this stand a profit from it I would and are say, going to become rich enough that they are sort of removed from their own But don't class you have to separate it from that? I mean, you can't it's not an ulterior motive to to release something like this into the wild and no note that these people are going to make money off it. That's what all of the movie businesses, right? We can only really judge the film on what it's offering. It doesn't feel deceitful in that way while I'm watching it. And if anything, it's more provocative. If It's not entirely successful, but it's certainly provocative in everything it brings to the table and how violently it does so. Don't you think that some of the uh, 
you know, criticisms against Elysium and In Time, a movie that I kind of dig, um, are that they're too lackadaisical in the way that they are dabbling in this conversation about, quote-unquote, class warfare and economic inequality and these kind of Occupy Wall Street uh, enhanced films. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, that at least this one is gun-toting and crazy and like, look, we're all going to implode unless we have a peaceful conversation about it before The Purge actually starts. And I, I think... should note that you, Bull, actually made this film already when he made oh, Assault right, yes. on Wall Street, which is actually yes. a really interesting it's an interesting movie it's not the typical ua bull exploitation movie it, it explodes into that in the final maybe 10 minutes when it's really just about going postal and t- taking f- a fantasy revenge against wall street but in the beginning it's really just a conversation film, about that situation that you a bull film is really the worst case scenario for one of these purge movies i mean it's like stripped of anything uh you know it's, it's purely uh, frustration and pathos and sort of this co-opted anger, none of which I think, I think Uable feels firsthand, but is sort of glomming onto opportunistically the suffering. Right, he's reading of, Wikipedia entries uh, and being like, right. oh, yes, I would shoot those people. And, and while <laughs> The Purge has a lot more conviction and is invited to as a result of its rating and its premise and the audience that it's appealing to than something like In Time, which is sort of a soft shoot PG-13 movie, and Ditto Elysium, which is really just garbage from toe to tail uh the this uh, that's not an expression um, this the, the, the purge is <laughs> i'm writing it down anyway for yeah, it doesn't the, cover a lot of the body but the uh i mean i think the purge the you know by contrast the relative courage of its convictions exposes the incompetence of its filmmaking and the um the limits of its budget and, I mean, they're still not working with the kind mm-hmm. of money that you would want after the mega successful first installment. I don't like, find okay, that noticeable in this film. I actually I, find it's if it's I, step up in scope to be quite adequate or at least – But I guess it, it's a wrap up this segment in the, in the broadest way possible. Do you think going forward with our current blockbuster climate that uh, the multiplexes are a viable place to explore class warfare in meaningful ways or – are these movies making you wish, by and large, that this sort of fare stayed more in line of like the Bling Ring and, and other films, even the the scale of U Bowl's film, uh, it, where they had a little bit more freedom um, and and were not as responsible to so many deep pocketed masters? Dave, oh, I mean, okay. Since I go first, I'll just go full crackpot on you guys. I think it's like there are all these little pieces, right? Like no one's going to see The Purge, well, hopefully. No, I don't believe that anyone's going to see The Purge and then go out and kill rich people. That seems like something I don't believe in. But what I do believe in is like this comes together with like everybody enjoying anti-heroes on television and all this becomes okay because it's in our theaters and whatnot. And that's the sort of thing that makes the climate for real change. And Crackpot. <laughs> I mean, speaking to what you were saying, David, I just don't think a big blockbuster can communicate vicious ideas, how essential this conversation is right now and how much of a stand people have to take against it. Um, a giant blockbuster is too entertaining to really hit, you know, knock people over with this issue. Um, that said, I think small movies like The Bling Ring are also not necessarily going to reach the audience they would need to to have this conversation nor again did they pack the same punch i'm I'm actually on board with the purge and yes i agree i think a, a 
an, a filmmaker with a little more elegance or a little more nuance in the conversation is, would be needed. But I feel like exploitation and the violence here is kind of necessary to reflect the the battle we're in, the class warfare, uh, so to speak. Uh, it needs to be violent in some it, ways. UA Bull it, is not the guy. <laughs> in conclusion, I want to see a reboot of John Q about somebody trying to make a insurance-covered appointment for an MRI and becoming so frustrated by the runaround that he goes on a uh, on a rampage. Should I just follow you with a camera this week? Or? <laughs> yes, you should. Here's a song about class warfare. Feel free to join in on the chorus if you like. It's time for working people to rise up and defeat the brokers and the bankers and the media elite and all the educated bums in paneled office suites and throw them in the street. Glory, glory, what's it to ya? Glory, glory, what's it to ya? Glory, glory, what's it to ya? The truth is marching Down with all the East Coast liberal aristocracy down with all the lawyers who live in luxury. Down with all the lobbyists in Washington, D.C. We'll run them up a tree. Let's reverse the social order. Oh, wouldn't it be cool? Okay. Uh, so for our mini-segment this week, after last week where we talked about our favorite movie of 2014 until now, we are going to be talking about our favorite overlooked films, the ones that uh, may be a little less expected and that a smaller percentage of our listenership has seen uh and movies that may be on netflix or itunes or some such uh on even physical media now or coming there shortly that you've got to you have six months to go see before the year-end countdown when you yell at us for picking movies that are too obscure you've never heard about um so i i am going to throw out for my choice uh, I would say Closed Curtain by Jafar Panahi, but that really only opened in theaters last week. And I don't think... In one uh, theater. Yeah, in one theater. I don't think you, people, even with its festival life, have been given a sufficient chance to see it. So I... Apparently it's open with... in Iran, right? Isn't it being given yes. away? So if you go to Iran, you can see the movie for free. So if you're... <laughs> so if it's easier for you to get to Iran than New York, uh, do it. Um, I'm going to go with the Rover, I think, um, we, which we only talked about a few weeks ago and is probably still, uh, some time away from being available, uh, in ancillary forms. But, uh, yeah, the Rover by David McHode, I think was a much more interesting movie that the press by and large didn't really seem to have time for. Um, and neither did, uh, most of the viewing public but i think it's strong it's interesting it's not going to be anywhere close to my top 10 of the year but is one of those movies that i'm very glad that i saw and that uh i'd recommend people check out nice patches yeah um i actually thought you would steal my answer david i i wanted is it to lock go... <laughs> no it's no, that not was your lock. favorite movie was... of the year already yeah <laughs> One of, one of my favorites. I was actually going to go with a movie that just popped up on Netflix for people trying to backtrack through the year uh, for free on streaming. Uh, like Father, Like Son, Hirokazu Koreeda's film um, that is, I just thought it was very insightful into the 
lives and emotional drive of Japanese and to hear that it's going to be remade by the Whites brothers of all people uh, for American Oof. audiences is just like that just does not compute. That I'm going to change work. my answer to like father by like son by Hirokazu Koreeda. Patrick, what, what's your answer? <laughs> hey, wait a second. I see what you did there. Uh, actually, I had one other. I wanted to I wanted to shout out to Hide Your Smiling Faces, a film that I really liked that David is not so hot on, if I recall. But no, it's, no, it's, it's fine. I just wasn't like floored by it, but it's fine. It was a, I think it's a very sweet coming-of-age film, very muted. You know, it tries to do what a lot of other of these methodical, poetic uh, films. Malikian, I suppose, uh, is a is a easy way to write it off. But uh, Daniel Patrick Carbone's directorial debut played Tribeca years ago, and now it's finally out, and I would highly recommend it tracking down. It's beautiful. It's lush. I would check it out. I guess for mine, uh, since I am one of those people that doesn't have time to see as many movies as I would like, I will share with you my jubilation that Jodorowsky's Dune is on DVD and on demand and Blu-ray. Now, it is a documentary about the filmmaker Alejandro Jodorowsky's um, movie adaptation of the book Dune that he did not get made. And I really want to see it. I was traveling when it had its very limited theatrical run and was never able to catch it. But now, apparently, it is available for both all of you and myself to catch up with. segment three tonight we're gonna be talking about women right katie oh no uh we're gonna be talking about movie music i feel like so many of the segments that we have in some way especially over the summer months come back to the idea that certain things are not being possible or not being allowed for or at the very least not conducive in blockbuster cinema that movies of a certain scale um are are without certain artistic qualities and we are going to be talking about that in regards to music tonight we're going to be talking about blockbuster movie scores i think uh there was a little brouhaha uh on twitter today about michael giacchino 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 i'm gonna say giacchino right uh, should, I just keep, should i just keep saying very yeah, yeah. Subtle, giacchino <laughs> subtle at least variations commit. say it name. more italian giacchino hey uh, <laughs> okay there you hey, go hey, okay uh and and Giacchino's uh, scholar for Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is uh, I want to I want to I'm going to bust out the p word I'm going to say profoundly unremarkable I mean it's uh, wow. it is not at all unpleasant uh, mind you it is just uh, it may as well not I mean it's so uh, instructive and obvious and and just really uninteresting and doesn't really um, it, it feels very lazy and processed and for me and this is sort of uh, a needlessly petulant aside, as so many of the things that I say are, uh, reveals how he is a very lacking composer. I have never understood the fan wanking over his work. I think uh, it is... Uh, and it should be noted, service. there is a lot of fan wanking over yeah. Giacchino. They yeah, love I mean, the man. I think these are all bad people. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say. Wow. They're, they're, just they're listening people. right now. They're yeah, hearing and, you say this. Uh, and no and one's nothing, listening in this podcast. Nothing else that they do in their lives could possibly compensate 
for none of the good <laughs> uh, could possibly compensate for being ignorant enough to stick care that about life Michael. In. Just oh, wow. keep stabbing. Stab- we didn't even we didn't even end with that. This is no, the psycho he, uh, of uh, fan destruction. His music for Lost was really uh, helpful for the show, and I think was a huge part of the show's identity. Uh, and there are some really pivotal. Pivot, pivotal. I should. I, I have no like to stand. I'm mocking people tonight. There are pivotal moments based on his music cues in Up, but I think beyond that, he's really uh, a hack. Um, and I think his score for <laughs> Dawn of the Planet of the Apes reflects that. But I think that so many composers that I respect a lot more have also showed an inability to deliver bombast in these mega blockbuster movies. I think of Alexander Desplat's score for Godzilla, which is a movie that listeners of the show know that I love beyond reason, or at least you know, towards the ceiling of reason. And uh, I, think I didn't think you liked that score. I don't like his score. I think his okay. score is uh, is a bore, and it's it's just loud noises and uh it's it's really there's none of the artistry that i know he's capable of none of the i mean and and in so many different forms i mean this plot as prolific as he is from you know um the painted veil to grand budapest hotel and birth i mean there's so many different types of music that he uh, excels at and this should be maybe maybe it's just an illusion to a non-musician like myself that the kind of music that scores a blockbuster should be easier for a genius like that to create um but it sounds so generic Mm. to my relatively trained at least movie score trained ear uh and it makes me think of uh, just a number of these blockbuster soundtracks and when i i obsessively in recent years because of these uh sort of video countdowns i make of my favorite films of the year that i score with movie music and, and and scores from uh from the movies of the year, I, I obsessively have been checking out all the music scores and, and listening to them and, and finding things that stick with me. Um, and they almost never, none of the music that really captures my imagination has been coming from movies that cost more than $100 million. Um, and I think there are, the most interesting exception that jumps to my mind is the music that Trent Reznor did with Atticus Ross for uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which was indeed a movie that cost more than $100 million, I, I think. I'm, uh, but, uh, it didn't need to, and it doesn't look like it does, but it did, <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't know why people rag on that movie. It, I, I don't know. Because it's that's terrible. Here, that's neither no, here nor there. ridiculous. I think it, it's greatly superior to the Swedish original, but whatever. Uh, the, the music is very, very interesting, and it's interesting in a way that I don't think, uh, I think would frighten most kinds of movies at that scale. I think that when you give David Fincher that sort of budget, at least at that point in his career, you begin to understand that it comes with certain strings and that he's going to want this sort of music. Um, but I think you're you're not going to see the Avengers who have a single memorable note. Um, and I'm wondering why why this is. Why is it impossible? Why why is it that these movies feel these movies that are gar- that are not going to lose any money based on the uh, the accessibility of their score, its its rote functionality. Why are they so afraid to take chances? Or or is this all in my head and there are still interesting choices I don't, being made? I, I don't think it's all in your head. I think it's once again when we like we were talking about Donald the Planet of the Apes, where some people see excellence, you see like clearing the bar, which is fine. Like if I'm a director, I'm a storyteller. I want something like the lost score so that people know when they're supposed to be scared because I don't have a lot of time in Hawaii with my, you know, 13 regular players. 
their locked-in dingy rooms, and God, I don't know how that show ended up the way it did. Anyway, totally unimportant. But, like, when you have these small independent films or things that are done with between Trent Reznor and David Fincher, who have a very interesting working relationship where they sort of, like, send their sketches back and forth to each other, and the, because Trent Reznor works the way he does electronically, he's able to sort of build those sketches into textures while David Fincher is editing the film. Um, so you could give, you know, something small to a independent artist and tell them to really make something outstanding or bring something else to the film. But you give something like Avengers and you're like, build a house that isn't going to fall down around this. And that's where you start getting things that sound generic because you were saying, you know, you think that it would, wouldn't be that difficult to create, you know, like, uh, bombast or wonder or whatever for these big moments for a score for a talented composer. But for me, it's like, those are the hardest things. Like, you only get a few, you know, E.T. suites and Jaws music cues, like, in a lifetime, let alone when you have to churn out, you know, like, uh, five or six a year. But maybe I'm looking at this backwards, that they have these, these films that are so, you know, assembly line shaped uh, and have to hit all of these, you know, expected beats that by the time they get to the composers who uh, yes. movies of this scale come into the equation so late uh, along, uh, there's really not much that they can do. I mean, they Alexander Desplat watches a cut of Godzilla and he's like, what what could I I mean, the, the visuals are prohibitively instructive of for the music. I have a lot of thoughts on this. May I address some? <laughs> um, and that's all the time we have for this. No. <laughs> okay, David. First off, um, you're not you're not seeing movies as a spectrum right now, right? Um, there, there's obviously giant blockbusters and there's small indies, and one cannot accommodate the the score of the other per se. Um, I think that. Well, first off, you're definitely confusing Girl with a Dragon Tattoo for a big movie, which it's not. It might have cost $100 million, but this is not The Avengers. Um, this is still a small, intimate drama. It's like The Social Network. It just has mystery and murder and and craziness, but it's still small scale. And I think that's the key here. Um, Trent Reznor can do something small and intimate and grungy, uh, but that doesn't... I mean, The Avengers doesn't accommodate that. And I agree with you. I, I, I'm, I think I'm bipartisan here. I agree that um, a lot of today's blockbusters don't give uh, an opportunity to composers to really knock it out of the park, John Williams theme style. A lot of composers would love to do that, have big melodies that you're going to hum out of the theater, but they're so plot-driven and they de-emphasize imagery awe-inspiring moments, that we don't have moments where it, the movie can just become Fantasia, where the music can become, take center stage in a way. Um, I do think there's a danger in seeing composers who come from... I know you're, you're, the article you wrote for The Dissolve, I don't know if you pimped that yet. We should pimp that. No, I was waiting for you to do it. Thank you. Okay, there you go. Um, you, you wrote about indie musicians kind of stepping up and scoring perhaps bigger music or... or blockbusters seeking inspiration from these types of composers you cite under the skin um mika levy's score which is all noise and craziness and you wish you could see some of that in big movies i think there's a fear in 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 that for me uh, i like them working at that scale that's where you can really experiment or the imagery can step forward for a composer to go as crazy as mika levy does in that film 
you got to look at Hans Zimmer and his origin story, right? In the 70s, he was playing synthesizers for Krakatoa. In the 80s, he was producing punk rock bands uh, records for The Damned. And, and then now we know Hans Zimmer as like Mr. Minimalist, three notes, loud as possible, crash, boom, bang, throw it through the machine, and now it's the Man of Steel score, right? And we fear that. And I think that's what you'd see a lot of as these guitarists or indie rockers step up to the plate. You did not like Clint Mansell's Noah score, did you? No. But you adore, I see you listening to Moon on Spotify. You, uh, there's something first functioning. Of all, <laughs> first of all, I didn't realize that that was public. Second of all, uh, I'm listening to it tonight for the very first time and was thinking to myself, I almost, <laughs> this seemed uh, antagonistic and, and just really a waste of energy, but I almost tweeted at scott weinberg who uh, is probably listening to score by moon more than any other living human just to tell him how boring i found this oh music. boy but you like <laughs> but clint, clint mansell he's he's done i do i do really like clint mansell i just don't think that this is a, one of his stronger efforts i mean his collaborations with chronos quartet are some of the most iconic music of the last 20 years requiem for a dream is legendary he, i mean these indie composers can take movies of small scale to epic proportions. And I don't know if they could do that if the movie was already epically sized. You see Giacchino trying to do Giacchino. this classic melodic era, uh, you know, the Maurice Jarret or the John Williams. Uh, he's trying to emulate that. I think where he does it really well is John Carter. I think he does it in Star Trek. I, I, I like the Dawn of the Planet of the Apes score, uh, which it's interesting how much you love Mika Levy and under the skin because I think she's echoing. I don't like where this is going. I, I think like she's echoing uh, George Legetti. You know the 2001 music. George Legetti. No, it's it's George. George George Legetti. It's George. It's George Legetti. Yes. Giacchino. J e r d g e is the pronunciation. George. Uh, anyway, I think that Mika is emulating that in some ways. And then Giacchino does the same thing in a certain track, in the track where the apes are hunting. We hear this kind of oh, haunting vocals. Um, yes. And, and here is someone trying to adapt that and go big and do what you love so much in a score. Where, where why, why it might not bleed through as much is because there's so much action on screen. Well, well I mean, it's, because... it's admirable there's no bombs as well. Well, the Ligeti moment is, I think quoted verbatim in the musical world i mean it's, it's it's sampled almost in godzilla but that doesn't make you know when they're jumping out of the plane but that doesn't make the uh the score any more interesting to me well i think, I think where like, i think where giacchino and alexandra Desplat fail this summer is being too nostalgic they're too nostalgic for this classic music that they love they're not trying to bring they're not trying to modernize the big uh, orchestra sounds i hate sounds, to be, uh, I hate to be wait, what is someone here Dubstep Spider-Man coming through. Oh my god! Because I think Dubstep Spider-Man's coming through. Wow, that is a that's a great point. I I never saw the movie, and God willing, I never will. But it did I, something interesting. Right, right. I really enjoyed it. They were reaching. They might have face planted for most of America, but I would love to see more of that. I would love to see the way that Dap Punk face planted with Tron happen more often because that was an admirable attempt. That I think they just got a movie that wasn't big enough for the well, I don't think that well, score was Daft Punk in... enough, if anything. That's well, too Zimmerified. Well, now we're getting into the, the sort of ma the material that I talked about in that Dissolve article, and maybe a little bit 
further afield from the topic at hand. But I think I think Amazing Spider-Man 2 still is a very good example. I do think, to be a little bit more cynical about it, that people like Giacchino and uh, his peers are beginning, because of the inflexibility afforded to them, um, are, are beginning to see these blockbuster movies as paycheck gigs. I but there is, they, there's, you're, you're misguided in that because Giacchino does have freedom. I mean, you're seeing Matt Reeves in the frickin', you know, or, or, uh, recording session. You know, these, these guys are, have been longtime collaborators. This is but one of the composers trust, who has the freedom. Matt Reeves? I mean, I think, I, I understand how that, I understand how that, uh, goes against the point that I was making, but at the same time, I think Matt Reeves' filmmaking shows nothing except for a man trapped in these, you know, very outmoded blockbuster filmmaking conventions. I mean, he's not even the same guy who made Cloverfield anymore. I mean, the movie he made after that was a quote of a better. But how can there not be room for this classic mode of orchestration? And I think there. there I mean, it doesn't have to be synonymous with blockbusters, but there should be room for it. Not everything has to be. Um, has to reject why does, melody. Why, why, when composers are as talented as they are today, are none of these soundtracks memorable? Like, I'm not asking for Donald. Well, the Marvel the movies aren't asking for it, and we know that. That's as you know indelible as the music from Lawrence of Arabia. But it it, it seems to me, with the spate of blockbuster films that we've had, and superhero movies and, and apes movies and everything else, that it's strange to me that none of these music, none of these scores, are really become iconic in recent years i mean other than inception which in retrospect maybe we wish hadn't had quite the success that it did because it was like you know vultures vultures everywhere and i was watching uh, the hollow husk of a thrill ride that is gravity on cable last night and i think what's his face steve steve what what's his name steve james that's not his name he made uh <laughs> steven price steven <laughs> price uh Stephen, I, that's a movie that takes unfamiliar forms in some respects, at least, at least in its setting. Uh, and I made the argument initially that it should have done away with music altogether. And maybe that's still the crux of my problem with how it incorporates sound. But I, I mean, the score for that is deadly dull and familiar. And here I'm watching a woman, you know, shooting between space stations, and which is something that I haven't seen before on film in this way so why have i heard it before so many times i mean why why is this happening and and is there i mean even if you don't think the problem is quite as dire as i do do you think there there is a way as maybe let's just even if we just combine it to the marvel movies and dave i know has strong opinions on the marvel movies are impossible that is an imbro- that's just distant that's in our that's behind us there's no hope for the marvel movie music go okay, go beyond that where where else can okay, we go so the the dc music oh fuck um, you well i actually i don't hate the zimmer man of steel score uh i just think zimmer ends up producing he has too many people in his factory and that's the problem there's too many imitators everyone wants the same the h and z music score. factory score yeah because well, the scores don't need to be important it's it's prioritizing the direction it's prioritizing the plot and the action um, you don't have movies of grandeur on the blockbuster level anymore, so you don't have music of grandeur. Um, but I feel like trying to ask, you know, Mika Levy to step up and do a big blockbuster score is backwards. You end up becoming Zimmer. Uh, I think very few composers have been able to do that. I think Ennio Morricone is one of the very few people who seems to have found he evolved as as time went on with his westerns, and then he 
uh, latched on to electronic music and sort of playing with mel- uh, melody and ambience and strangeness, just mixing it all up. He's really one of the only people to ever do that and work in that mode. And Clint Mansell does that well, in some ways, but he also um, Morricone also had the good fortune and the uh, foresight to attach himself to a lot of auteurs who really made the kind of movies that would not have supported uh, less forward thinking musical but contributions. I, I, think, I mean, I think they're like, you know, it, I think indie movies are, are more problematic than you think. I mean, there's a real movement for post rock, which is all the sameness. I mean, I don't really get people oh, who I'm love not, the short term. By no 12. stretch of the imagination, am I giving a blanket, you know, okay, everything's fine to the indie movie community in any respect, let alone what they're but doing you're musically. De-emphasizing the composer and and putting indie artists on a pedestal when they are not going to be the most successful people. And I think there are composers working out there in in kind of mid-level blockbusters. I'm thinking John Bryan doing Paranorman. That's a great score. Or John Murphy, who did Sunshine with Underworld. And I know you hate this, but I'm a big fan of the score to Trance, which is Underworld and pretty much just Rick Smith. I mean, and my problem with the score to Trance is that to listen to it would involve thinking about the movie I Trance. You. I hate so you so much. I also... <laughs> I also dream of Nick Cave doing a big budget movie someday. I'm like, in my fantasy world, the Dark Tower movies actually happen, and Nick Cave does the score. Uh, he's someone who I can see, he, he just seems to have a sense of genre. and Maybe that's what they're missing. A lot of composers don't seem to have a sense of genre. They just seem to have a sense of propulsive action. And Giacchino, I think, can work in that mode. I think that's why Star Trek and John Carter are really successful, or, or why Up works or why his interstitial music in 5050 works why he can bounce between those two things um i was saying to david that i think edm has a bright future in uh you love edm well i mean i think it's very electronic (laughs) dance music david are they the new tangerine dream are they the new vangelis no, I'm just saying that it, you have uh, infinitely manipulable, uh, wide spectrum access to a whole bunch of different ways to manipulate sound, and especially if you have different theaters, different ways to see it, or different mixes. I mean, Patches on our other podcast about Legend of Korra, we talk about the people who do the score and sound design for that show, mm. and one of their side projects is an electronic music project because it's really fun to screw around with this stuff. And so I'm really hoping that someone finds the right combination of electronic sounds. It sounds like a Francis Ford Coppola movie waiting to happen. He wants to remix Twixt. Maybe yeah. you can do it with I mean, EDM. It's, it's to Nosferatu. It's close to, to. It's close to how the social network was made, but just using, like... I don't think that dubstep is necessarily a bad... Uh, like uh, I don't know, compromise between a melodic score and the boah of an action movie. Like if you manipulate your instrumentation right, it doesn't have to be like an assault on the ears. It could be part of the drama, which is what I liked about Amazing Spider-Man Two when it did work. So I I don't I don't know. I thought I'd add that in there at the end too. here. <laughs> I can't remember the beat. It wasn't it wasn't that. Uh, That's how I know it, too, just because uh, of your interpretation of that Comic-Con panel. No, I, I feel forget. like I, even in my interpretations, I had it accurately once upon a time, but have since lost it. Uh, I've only heard you guys do a, interpretations of it, so in my it's memory, be on YouTube, I think. it's exactly that. Anyway. 
That's still the best movie I've ever seen. <laughs> Nosferatu. That's Twixt, by the way. Everybody. That conversation went really downhill pretty quickly. Yeah. That's it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. We managed not to fly the ship apart without Katie, who hopefully will be back next week. Uh, but until then, I think we're going to have these two dudes talking about boyhood, which is good, because they both experienced it firsthand, both the movie and in real life, this Friday. But until then... Did you not? <laughs> Dave, Dave grows jack ears. Uh-huh. <laughs> Dave grows jack ears. Oh, let's talk about where we can find everybody until uh, this Friday, elsewhere on the web. Matt Patches. Yes, I am Matt Patches. I write all over the place. Try and put all my work at mattpatches.com. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And Fighting in the War Room has a website. It's called fightinginthewarroom.com. And we put all the episodes there. You can comment, share. We're always trying to look and read uh, the comments, so we, we love the feedback. And we love your reactions to what we're talking about. Um, so join the conversation, fightinginthewarroom.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the editor-at-large uh, for Little White Lies magazine, the beautiful 54th issue of which, uh, the cover film of which is The Rover, incidentally enough, I was not at all thinking about that when I referenced the film earlier in the episode, is now sure available. Sure you are. Uh, hey, you can find it. Uh, you can find me on littlewhitelies.com. Also on Twitter at David Ehrlich and Criterion Corner and on The Dissolve and the AV Club. And you can find all of us together on Facebook at Fighting in the War Room. Right on our wall. Like, I'm Dave Gonzalez. I spell that first part D-A-7-E, which is also my Twitter handle. I write about superhero movie news and Star Wars rumors at latino-review.com. You can give us a call here on the show at 914-410-6450. That's a 0-0-6-4-5-0. Leave us a message and uh, or a question and anything, and if we like it a lot, we'll play it on the show. Uh, we are also on Twitter as a show, Unified, as an acronym, F-I-T-W-R. It stands for Fighting in the War Room, where you can answer our lightning round question for this week, which was in honor of iOrigins. What's the dumbest title for the best movie? And we'll be talking to you later this week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.